Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. You know, the last thing you do if you're trying to introduce a new way to use water is to call it from toilet to tap. You know, yeah. call it, the, the, the Singaporeans call it new water. Yes, we've got Lenny Mendonca, owner of the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company over in California. A man who loves his beer and finding new and interesting ways of producing it. Stay tuned. Hello, welcome back. This is episode 11 of The Better Business Show. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back to us. Um, This week we're going to be picking up a story that's been doing the rounds uh, for the last few weeks really and we're going to get stuck into the detail of the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company which has been well, truly innovating in the way it produces its much-loved beer. So more of that very soon. But first, let's find out what's been happening in the world of better businesses with Vicky Knowles. Hi, Vix. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, I've had a nice weekend, a bit longer than usual. That's always good. Happy Easter. Yeah, and you, and you. Hope you had a good one. Yeah, it was. Very nice, yes. So plenty going on this week. Um, I thought we'd start with a story about the European car manufacturing sector. Uh, More emissions trouble for car makers. Of course, car manufacturers have strict targets when it comes to making sure the vehicles they produce do not uh, pump out too many greenhouse gas emissions. Well, plenty of failure going on. There's a new study out by PA Consulting. uh, And they do an annual forecast of car manufacturers' performance against mandatory EU CO2 emission targets uh, and they reckon that Volkswagen, BMW, Hyundai, Kia and Jaguar Land Rover are going to miss their 2021 targets leaving them with big fines. Um, So PA has just done a ranking of the top 13 car manufacturers in Europe and looking at their performance against EU emissions targets and it shows that Peugeot still sits at the top of the table Uh, Fiat Chrysler comes in second, uh, which has overtaken Renault-Nissan as the number number three. Uh, Toyota comes in fourth. So four car manufacturers, along with Volvo, all set to meet their individual emissions targets. Ford is in fifth. GM is in sixth. Um, But, uh, yeah, BMW's results, uh, what did they do? uh, They moved from 12th to 10th. And it reflects their kind of heavy sales of SUVs and a fairly low take-up of hybrid vehicles. Uh, and the same is, the, is true of, of Volkswagen. Sales of hybrid and electric vehicles make up just 0.1% uh, and 0.2% respectively of their, of their total sales. But the, you know, the crux of this story is that the cost of failure is going, to be, is going to be massive for these companies. The EU plans to fine manufacturers €95 Euros for every gram of CO2 above the company-specific target. Uh, so huge implications and still some struggles within car manufacturing in Europe. Yeah, it's a bit of a yikes one. Um, so on the other, on one hand, it appears that meeting these targets is a real challenge, but on the other, some of them can do it, so why can't the others? Um, but either way, as you say, it sends quite a firm message that business as usual is just not possible anymore. And that innovation and perhaps expanding the hybrid electric offerings may be imperative. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of innovation, I know you've got a story on on Apple this this week. Yeah, so I'm sure some of your listeners watched Apple's keynote on Monday. 
Andy, or at least caught up with the highlights. I was actually geeky enough to watch that entire thing and um, was pretty excited about the robotic system they unveiled called Liam, which doesn't actually stand anything for, for anything. It's just called Liam. Um, so to put some context, having recyclable components in an iPhone is all well and good, but how do you actually get them out of there? Well, Liam, the 29-armed robot, can deconstruct the iPhone at the end of its life, removing and separating the different components, say lithium from the battery, gold and copper from the camera, etc., etc. The idea is that the materials in the iPhone can live on as something else. So apparently Liam can take apart an iPhone every 11 seconds. So while that's pretty amazing, for now the majority of discarded iPhones will end up being sorted by humans. And as Greenpeace says, making it easier for us humans to disassemble them should be part of the solution. Nevertheless, Apple is apparently hoping that its competitors will copy this innovation, unlike many of its other products. Yeah, sure. It's, a, it's an odd name, isn't it, for, for a robot? No offence to anyone with the name Liam out there, but it does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? But yeah, I mean, this is good from Apple. I think, you know, it's coming for lots of criticism in recent years uh, over the way its its products are made in, in Chinese factories with, with, you know, questionable working conditions, uh, but also, you know, what goes into those products. And now this focus on, on what happens after they're, they're, they're kind of being taken apart is you know clearly a strategy to do something to address that so it's it's it's, it's really interesting to uh, to find out about what apple's up to um speaking of supply chain working conditions um i've been writing a lot this week about modern slavery in supply chain so my head is kind of buzzing with stats and facts about just how rife it is 36 million people are enslaved somewhere in the world every year in India, there's 14 million slaves. So this is people being forced into labour. Uh, but it's rife. You know, people working in cocoa fields in West Africa, people working in vessels in the seafood sector over in Thailand. Huge, huge issue for companies that are you know, seriously at risk of being caught up in this stuff. And news this week, which comes from a study by the Ashridge Centre for Business and Sustainability uh, and the Ethical Trading Initiative, says that 71% of companies believe there is a likelihood of modern slavery occurring at some point within their supply chains. And it's, you know, it's so difficult for companies to really understand what is actually happening along the chain, but they, you know, they really need to get on top of this stuff. Uh, the UK Modern Slavery Act, which came into force uh, last year, I know there's going to be similar legislation adopted in the US soon as well, but really demanding that companies publicly issue a statement about what they're doing to combat the issue. Uh, last week, Nestle was exposed by the NGO Danwatch, which found that, that Nestle was buying coffee from plantations in Brazil that had human rights abuses going on. Uh, and that's purely because Nestle you know, is not able right now to name all of the plantations it buys from in Brazil and, and elsewhere in the world. But of course, Nestle is not, Nestle is not alone and lots of other companies uh, will be exposed to this type of risk. So, you know, huge, huge issue uh, and, and, and frankly horrible and, and worrying. Definitely. And as you say, it's not an overnight fix and actions like getting chief executives to show leadership on the issue and collaborating with others are not necessarily easy things to do but from the sounds of the report companies are beginning to take this seriously and they're realizing that existing methods of monitoring the supply chain aren't enough um so once they kind of really get a grip on that they can work towards a solution hopefully indeed yeah indeed uh so so finally vix what, what else you've got yeah so finally um coca-cola enterprises 
is investing 56 million in the sustainability of its UK operations after its research partnership with Cranfield University is finished. So the research project has uncovered five pathways to achieve a more sustainable manufacturing industry by 2050, which are laid out in a white paper. So I'm sure you can link to this in the show notes, but in brief, the pathways are anticipating the future, so that's using big data to make production process more efficient, such as by using real-time information to balance supply and demand. Providing nutrition, so that's things like reducing waste and the emergence of smart ingredients to replace sugar, fat and salt. Sharing the benefits um, in reference to creating new products, which means both increased industry collaboration as well as engaging with consumers and using open innovation. Then there's inspiring the next generation, so integrating into schools and colleges as well as as an industry, addressing societal challenges such as climate change, etc. that concern young people. And then finally, joining forces, which sounds a bit like number three, but it's about working with industry, customers and society to achieve positive environmental impact. So obviously, these pathways, as they call them, are quite specific to the food and drink industry, but certainly the sentiments may be useful for many businesses looking ahead. Yeah, plenty to learn, I think, from a company like uh, Coca-Cola Enterprises. Uh, You know, 56 million, fairly big investment this. And of course, this is probably the first announcement from from Coke off the back of the the UK budget last week, which obviously announced the the incoming sugar tax in the UK. Uh, But yeah, the bottling company, uh, Coca-Cola Enterprises, always seems to be kind of innovating and, and pushing the boundaries uh be interesting to see what the, the you know the detail of, of of what what you know what this kind of strategy actually um has in the future but um interesting to see uh thanks vix thanks for your updates this week and uh i know you've got a week off next week so we won't we won't hear from you next week but uh, well, you'll be back in a couple of weeks from now yeah i'll see you then tom america has had its fair share of resource shocks In the 1970s, upheaval in the Middle East led to severe oil shortages, forcing Americans to sit for hours as they waited in line to get gas for their cars. It actually made people change vehicles for a few years at least, with the big gas guzzlers making way for smaller cars. And of course the trend for SUVs over more economical vehicles has chopped and changed in the decades since then. But today in California, a new type of resource shock has been unfolding, and it too may come to define an era, a generation on from here. But it's not oil that's getting everybody excited this time, it's water. California has been devastated by a severe drought that's lasted for the past four years. Farmers have been ripping out crops, local governments have been ordering restaurants to stop serving glasses of water, and religious believers have been endlessly praying for rain. And the statistics about the Californian drought are seriously scary. 2014 was the state's driest since the start of record-keeping back in 1895. The state's snowpack, the source of roughly one-third of the water used by Californian cities and farms, has been hovering at around 20% of its normal water content. And the amount of water in certain crucial reservoirs is lower now than it was in 1977, which was one of the two driest periods on record. Now, the effects of El Nino have brought plenty of rain during this winter period, but some water experts say that California's dry spell is going to last for decades. 
Now, whether California's water shortage will actually lead to lasting change in the way people you know, use this precious resource remains to be seen. But there's certainly been plenty of action and innovation among the business community in California. Companies like Driscoll's, uh, a berry-growing business in the state, one of many that has recently signed up to an advocacy campaign being run by Ceres called Connect the Drops. Other members of the campaign, uh, companies like An Anhuser Bush, the company behind Stellar Artois and Budweiser, uh, has actually improved water efficiency and the way it manages water absolutely incredibly, reducing its water usage by around 23% between 2009 and 2015 in America, resulting in water savings of more than 2.5 billion gallons. It's been reusing its effluent, reclaiming water in its auxiliary operations to reduce the needs from local sources in many breweries such as the one in Los Angeles and it's been supplying some of its effluent to local communities at nearly 40 of its breweries lo uh, globally uh, to be used for agricultural irrigation or watering public parks or street cleaning that sort of thing. Other companies like the jeans company Levi's are making their waterless finishing technique publicly available to spur water conservation across the apparel sector. The techniques reduce water use in garment finishing by up to 96% and have helped the company save more than a billion litres of water since 2011, or the equivalent to 10.5 million 10-minute showers. And our guest on this week's show is another of these companies, the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company, situated just outside San Francisco, is making beer using the water that has already run through sinks, showers and bathrooms, so-called grey water. And it's using the same technology pioneered by NASA to recycle water to make it safe to drink while in space. The trouble is, state legislation declares the beer not fit to sell right now, a situation the owner of the business, Lenny Mendonca, is keen to rectify. I'll let Lenny tell you the story in more detail. Lenny, thank you for, for joining us here on The Better Business Show. Uh, you're the owner of Half Moon Bay Brewing Company in uh, in California. I know you're traveling right now, so you're on you're on the East Coast, but um, Half Moon Bay, just outside San Francisco. P picture the, the scene there. Well, what does it look like in your part of the world? We are on the ocean about 20 miles south of San Francisco. So we're a restaurant and brewery that overlooks the harbor in Half Moon Bay where if you know the Mavericks Big Wave Surf Competition, which is a, one of the world-class big wave competitions that happens every year, that we, our window looks right on, on the ocean to where that big wave surf competition happens. So we're, we're uh, in a uh, very rural and quiet but lovely part of the Bay Area. It's, it sounds sounds beautiful. You, you've been the owner there since, I think, 2000. Is that right? Yes, we opened it in 2000 um, and have been, we're just about coming up on our 16th anniversary here uh, next month. Right, right. But but your background, you, you, you're with, you were with McKinsey, weren't you, as a, as a management consultant. Is that right? Yes, I was with McKinsey for, for 30 years, um, mostly in... San Francisco and the latter part of my career in Washington, D.C. Um, I was a home brewer as a hobby and decided to open this restaurant and brewery 16 years ago as a um, on the side. We live five minutes away from there, so we were looking for a place that would be 
uh, fun and enjoyable to go hang out and brew some good beer. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about the company. What, what sort of beers do you make? So we have 10 different beers on tap at all time in our brewery. It's um, Six of those are, are regular beers that we always have, a, a from a Kolsch to an Amber to a Saison to a um, coffee milk stout and a couple of IPAs. And then we rotate four beers seasonally that are a combination of what makes sense for the time of year. So, you know, we'll do a, an Irish red for St. Patrick's Day. Or in the winter, we'll do a, a, a set of darker uh, uh, darker beers and ales. And then in the, win- in the summer, we'll do um, uh, pilsners and, and other lighter things. So we always have 10 beers on tap. They're, they're, um, uh, uh, we've got the, the full range of whatever people are looking for. Okay. And, and do you describe yourself as a kind of craft beer company? Yes, absolutely. We're... You know, each beer is handmade on our in our brewery right um, behind the restaurant by our expert brewers, and we are we are absolutely a a craft brewer. Every uh, you know every, every recipe is home developed and produced by our our brewers, and and uh, we we really appreciate the culture and. Uh, collaborative nature of the craft part of the brewing business it's very much a a, 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 a an artisan business where you have people who are in it for the love of the product mm. and are always trying to do new and interesting things and and share what they see working and and collaborate with others in the in the industry Sure, uh, and we'll, we'll come on to talk about how you're doing things differently shortly. But I wonder how how's business? I mean, the craft the craft beer market uh, certainly here in London, and actually where I am, just outside London in Kent, I mean, is a is a booming kind of scene of of craft beer making going on. How, how's business? Is, is it the same in the states? It's very much a booming business. There is a resurgence in every beverage and food category of an interest in authentic and craft and um, you know, high quality. And so craft sector of the beer business in the United States has been growing at double digits for over a decade wow. and grew has grown at, yeah, grew at 20% last year. So you know, there, there are now more breweries in the United States at any time since the Great Depression and Prohibition. So there are uh, you know, dozens of breweries opening every week. Sure, sure. And of course, what prompted me to get in touch with you in the first place was that uh, the fact that you guys are now making your beer using wastewater. Well, not actually necessarily wastewater, but but certainly grey water. Can you can you tell us about that? Explain what you're up to. Sure. So um, we brewed a a, a beer that. Uh, is the same recipe as our Tunnel Vision IPA um, out of gray water beer. Uh, sorry, gray water, which is water that is um, coming out of sinks and dishwashers and those sorts of things um, as both a test to see whether it could be done. So we were not going to uh, not going to make anything available until we were sure that it was uh, really high quality and tasted great. And we also wanted to do it as much to demonstrate to people in 
in our part of the world where we're in the middle of a fourth year of a drought, that water's a important and precious commodity, and we need to do everything we can to treat it that way, mm-hmm. including uh, recycling our water. And, and, and it turned out that after um, some experimentation, looking around for how we could do that, we ended up being able, with our uh, brewer, to produce a beer that, that we debuted at a urban sustainability conference um, and did a blind taste test with a, a set of experts from a, a, a water environmentalist to a chef to the founder of the conference to the ambassador from the Netherlands and had them do a blind taste test to see if they could tell which beer was which and which one they liked. And the net of it was they couldn't tell and as many of them thought the recycled water beer tasted better. Right. So it's... Uh, been a, a really valuable and fun effort to do. Um, it, it's um, it's a demonstration project for now. Okay. Um, um, among other reasons, in at least in California, um, it's not legal to use recycled water for consumption purposes, whether directly to drink or for use in products for consumption. So we can't package and, and sell it commercially. We can use it as a sample and when we donate it for environmental purposes. Um, and so we're working with the regulators to get that um, clarification so that it can be used. And that's been an, an encouraging and interesting process as well. So we're, we're doing that as a demonstration and to help raise awareness and, and move the regulation so that people treat water as a precious commodity not as a something that's free and, and endless yeah yeah and, and those conversations with the with the regulators how how are they going because i mean it does sound it does seem completely mad that that recycled water can't be used in in the way that you've demonstrated you know can be uh you know as you, as you rightly say you're in the fourth year of a, a serious drought over there uh, what, what are those conversations like with with the regulators right now so they they have been very encouraging um, in many ways, um, they they appreciate someone who's pushing to get it done. Um, there's, as you said, a serious drought, and people are really looking for for whatever means are possible to conserve and and reuse water. Um, and so they're they are working on the regulations, and and to the extent it requires legislation, our legislator, local legislators, are working on that as well. Um, you know, there, it does need to be regulated and it should be. You know, you should have um, high quality standards. And the reality is, as we found with this water, the water that the, the requirements for reusing water that comes out of any recycling activity are higher than the standards for water that you pump out of a well. So that needs to be in place. And then you need to have inspections and ensure that if there's a problem, you know where it's coming from and can shut it off, you know, all the things that you'd want. Yeah. But the reality is, which they have told us, and we've gotten a lot of support from the, the, the water environmental movement is, you know, all water's recycled. There's no such thing as water that hasn't been recycled. It's just a matter of the process that it's used. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're, we're, uh, we're getting a lot of support, a lot of interest and, um, have been continually told it's just a matter of time and working through things not active opposition. Yeah. Honestly, the 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 to the extent there is resistance, and it's not really resistance; it's reluctance. Um, 
it's a consumer perception problem, which mm-hmm. is in part why we did this. Um, you, know, you still sometimes have to deal with the the ick factor of people saying, I don't want to drink water like that, or I don't want to use it, um, when the reality is they already are, they just don't know it. Yeah, and so yeah. we wanted to we wanted to do it with a product that is known for water being a core ingredient of the quality mm. and say if you know a brewer who um, makes their living based on the quality of their product can do this um, you know why can't you drink everyday water that way so mm. we're, we're we're trying to raise awareness in that sense as well um, you know the last thing you do if you're trying to introduce a new way to use water is to call it from toilet to tap, you know, yeah. call it, the, the, the Singaporeans call it new water. Um, okay. And the, the technology we've been using to do this is not new technology. It's been in place for decades. And in fact, it's already central to the water systems in parts of the world where water security is an issue, like Singapore or like Israel. Mm. And the irony of it is that those technologies were invented in California. We're just not using them for our own water system. Right, right. So have you, have you guys had to make an investment on the site there to, to make use of this water? Or is that- right, no, right now for the purposes of demonstration, we are um, trucking the water in from, from other places. Originally, we got it from NASA, um, from using the same water purification technology that used in the space shuttle right. so that um, and you know when we build our our expand our brewery and do it on site we will have to do an investment for now we're just trucking it in it's not it, it, doing it the way we're doing it now is totally uneconomic this is not about saving money um our water source is fantastic where we are it's we're on a well that doesn't cost us anything to take the water out of the ground and we happen to be in a part of the state where there's a very rich aquifer, so it's not a narrow issue for us, but we think it's an important issue and are doing it to raise awareness, even if we're we're losing money with every beer we sell. Mm. I mean, and, and water use in beer making is is a big issue, isn't it? I mean, was it five pints for every pint of beer that you make, or, or is that yes, different for you guys? Right. I mean, so nope, is it, that's right. Okay. So it's so it's it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a very, it's always been a big issue, hasn't it? Water use in in beer making. No, it's a very big issue. It's a it's a, a water intensive process. The bulk of what's in your pint when you drink it is water, obviously. Um, but in addition, there's a lot of water in the brewing process and in the cleaning process. So it is four or five gallons of water, pints of water for every pint. Sorry, four or five pints for every pint of final product. So it is a very water intensive product process. Sure. So, so the the kind of rationale. Yes, you're trying to make a point. Yes, you're trying to grab attention from policymakers. But eventually, I guess when you can commercialise this this properly, this is about, I guess, securing the future of the business and 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 saving money, right? No, no that it. The reason that people aren't doing it as much today, at least in California, is that water's not priced or measured when you take it out of the ground and it's your own water you don't have to pay for it the only cost is the well that that you you put in place in the first instance and Mm -hmm. so that creates a tragedy of the commons problem of people use too much and um over over drain the aquifers and so what was is happening over time is 
as people are particularly in the extended drought period, understanding that that's not sustainable. We're having uh, regulations in place that will now measure groundwater reduction and regulate it right. um, for ac- pulling water out of aquifers, and water will get priced more as it should on the value that, that and the scarcity of it. And when that's in place, then there's much more incentive for people to invest in technologies like recycling. Um, and it is, they're already in a couple of parts of the state recycling water plants that are putting the water back into the aquifer afterwards so it gets mixed into the overall system and then pulled back out. So Orange County already does that. And then in Santa Clara County, there is already a, a very large recycling water plant that's just waiting for regulatory per- approval to be able to be used. So right. you know, these things are not necessarily going to be done by individual sites putting in place their own water recycling systems, but the, the water um, the agencies are investing in it because they know they're, they're, they have high demand in for water and, and shortage. So sure. um, the system will correct if the incentives are in place. And, and so we're just trying to accelerate that. Yeah. And then, and then as you touched on before, that the public acceptance of, of drinking uh, a type of water that people are, are not used to drinking, I guess, uh, will, become, will become greater, won't it? I guess people will just accept that that's just, just what they do. And we think so. Um, it's also one of the reasons why we think it's appropriate for a craft brewer to do this. Um, you know, it's if you've got a very large production process and a very large brand out there, you're not going to start by doing this. But mm. this is what innovators do. You know, you try new things. And honestly, this is by an order of magnitude created more interest and more conversation around what we're doing with our brewery than anything else we've done. And that, that to me is just an indication that there is a real interest here. And, you know, every single person who's tasted the beer says it tastes fantastic. And, you know, that's the first hurdle to me. It's got to be a really, really high quality product. And uh, I actually think over time when this is legal, we will turn it from something where people are hesitant to something that they will seek out you know, it will be one of those products that are different and unique, and people say, "I want that." Mm. And there, and there is a, a nimbleness and an, and an agileness of a small business, I guess, or medium-sized business that that you don't get when you're with a, a large corporate. What was that part of the, your kind of personal rationale for for wanting to to, to run a, a business like uh, the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company? Yes, it was. Um, you know, we were looking for. An opera, first of all, I love beer and brewed it at home and thought it was a, once you taste really high quality craft beer that's done well, you don't go back to mass produced beer that right, right. is not as, not as good. And so we thought that would be interesting. And then we wanted to try a bunch of different products and different experimenting, different ways to market what we're doing. And that's been, a pleasure and this, this is an example of that it's also one where um you know this is what what those who are um are need to innovate to succeed should be trying and then when it works then it become more mainstream we've actually had some of the, the largest brewers in the country reach out to us and say how did you do that and what's the reaction been um and so that's it's been been interesting and encouraging to see that 
that there is a an opportunity and value in innovating and innovating in a way that's that's good for the environment and good for business. Sure, sure. So, so Lenny, I mean, it's a pleasure to, to speak with you and find out more about what what you're up to. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a fr- it's, say it's a Friday afternoon, the sun's setting. What's your what's your favourite beer of all time that uh, our listeners should seek out next time they're in your part of the world? Well, I, um, the uh, it, it's eight o'clock in the morning for me right now, so I'm not yet tipping <laughs> um, one, but I will be later today. So, my favourite beer that we have on tap now is. Uh, a um, coffee milk stout. It's called um, caffeine because it has uh, real coffee in it, and it's done in collaboration with an anti-human trafficking not-for-profit called Not For Sale. So it's a not-for-sale ale where the ingredients in the product and portion of the proceeds from its sale go back to support this nonprofit who's fighting human trafficking. So that's my favorite one, not just because it's a great cause, but because um, coffee and beer were made to go together. Why why not have them at the same time? (laughs) Sounds great. Lenny, pleasure to speak to you, and thanks for telling us all about it here on the Better Business Show. Uh, And we wish you all the luck and and, and look forward to seeing what you guys have planned next. Excellent. And please stop by Halfman Bay if you're in town. Appreciate the call, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lenny Mendonca there, owner of the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company. And we wish Lenny and the team every success in getting through to those regulators uh, in California because it's, it's, a, it's, well, it's a wonderful innovation and uh, it's desperately needed in, in that state. Uh, we have all the details of Lenny's uh, innovation and what the, uh, the company is doing in today's show notes. Just go to uh, betterbusiness.show and you'll find everything there. And please do stay in touch with us during the weeks. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Tom Idle. Uh, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter. Just go to betterbusiness.show and you'll find the, the, the form there that you can just fill in. Just need your email address uh, and we'll email you every week. And of course, you can subscribe via iTunes as ever. Also, if you're interested to know what else I get up to in my busy weeks, then you can check out my business, which is Narrative Matters, a content creation agency. Uh, just go to narrativematters.co.uk and you can find out how we might be able to support you with your uh, needs of storytelling and building an effective narrative around your sustainable business. So do check that out. But that's it for this week. I wish you all a very happy Easter. We'll be back again next Monday. Uh, so until then, goodbye. <laughs>